Well, as we wait for the Pac-12 media deal, the conference is mulling some expansion candidates, and those teams could compete with Oregon one day. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked On Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. Like, comment, subscribe, please, and thank you wherever you listen to or watch this show, which today is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, official sportsbook of Locked On. Make every moment more. Visit FanDuel.com slash Locked On today to get started. We're doing some realignment talk today, and you know, as uh, the host of Locked On Pac-12, I would like to consider myself at least decently well-versed in this subject. Question from Richard D. Penrose. Love the use of the middle initial there. Very formal and British and proper. Spencer, I know you have talked about it some, but wanted to know your thoughts on the Pac-12 adding these schools. San Diego State, which by the way, you spelled with an A, so it looks like San Diego. I don't know if that's an ode to Ron Burgundy and Anchorman, but I don't know. Spell with an E. Uh, San Diego State University, Fresno State University, Boise State, Southern Methodist, that being SMU, Rice. And even though they have no football program, do they have? A, they do have a very strong basketball program, so why not Gonzaga? So let's go through here. The most likely candidates to join the Pac-12 when the media deal and expansion get announced, which appears to be simultaneous, whenever that comes to pass, are SMU and San Diego State. Not in that order, but it doesn't really matter. Like San Diego State is the clear-cut number one option. And in the immediacy, do they present a threat to Oregon? More than you would think. In 2021, what were the two games that year Oregon would like to forget ever happened? Utah. 78-17, to or 76-17, to whatever it was, in a three-week stretch. Not great, Bob. Not great. San Diego State, earlier that year, beat Utah, playing in the Mountain West. Now, they hadn't made the quarterback change, but they took him to triple overtime, best of the Utes in San Diego. They've got a new stadium. They are making all the necessary commitments, and they fit a lot of the criteria the Pac-12 are looking for to join the conference. They want to join the Pac-12. Their president has talked about it. San Diego State is the clear-cut number one option. Their men's basketball team's in the Final Four. Men's basketball team could give anybody a game in the Pac-12 right now, today. That includes UCLA and Arizona. No questions there. But football-wise, they were not great in 2022. Not horrible, but they were not great. 7-6 and six was, I believe, their final record. Brady Hoke, our old friend, is their head coach. And they were coming off a 12-win season. They took a step back. But... Their potential is very, very real. And what you have to think about with any of these schools who could one day join the Pac-12 is not what they are right now, though it can be notable in some instances, depending on the sport you're talking about, but what could they become down the line? San Diego State is in Southern California, good-sized media market. They've got some money, not as much as SMU, actually, but they've got some money. They've got great fan support. They've got great facilities. They just built a new stadium, and they live in a very beautiful place. They're now going to be the Pac-12s, assuming they join, lone team in Southern California 
in five years, if you told me San Diego State was a top four team in the Pac-12, I'd believe you. I would 100% believe you. Is there going to be an adjustment phase? Yes, there always will be. But it's different now than it used to be. Think about Utah. When Utah joined the Pac-12 back in 2011 alongside Colorado, they had been a really high-level group of five football program. They had an undefeated season. They beat Alabama in a Sugar Bowl. Did you know that? Yeah, Utah did that. Still, when they got to the Pac-12, they were good but not great immediately. And it took them a while to finally break through when the conference, they've now done so two years in a row. They've been to the last four actual Pac-12 football championship games. They've become the best program in the conference. It took them some time, but they got there. There's no reason if the additions are, as I suspect, San Diego State and SMU and just those two teams, there's no reason whatsoever that either of them could not one day become a conference contender. Absolutely. They've got geographical location. They've got some program history. San Diego State more so recently. SMU way back in the 80s and 90s before they got the death penalty and everything went awry. But SMU has got a lot of money. That is a very... If SMU were to join the Pac-12, they would become... They would be in the top half of schools if you're just talking about total amount of money at the program. They just invested, SMU did, in a $100 million athletic facilities renovation on campus. And within the last 10 years, they've renovated their football stadium. They care about sports. They've got a lot of wealthy donors. They've got plenty of money. They have got plenty of money. But the good news for both of those programs or any school, right, if it's not just those two or if it's not one of those two, San Diego State's going to be a no-brainer here. But, you know, let's say I'm wrong and SMU isn't added somebody else. The advantage is when you make the Power 5 jump now, you've got the transfer portal. So you have greater access to Power 5-ready football players who can come and make an impact on your team now. Utah had to do it the old school way, and it took a lot longer. You announce the move to the Pac-12, and then, or you make it the Pac-12, I guess. Now it's the move to the Pac-10, whatever. Your recruiting takes a bump, but then those players have to be developed because they're coming from the high school ranks. Not as easy to just go add a bunch of guys who can reshape your roster in a single offseason. So one day, any of these schools could give Oregon fits. Some already have. We haven't played San Diego State super recently. We haven't, I don't know if we've ever played SMU, but another one that, that Richard is asking about here that is a candidate, but I don't think gets added, Fresno State. <laughs> I watched Fresno State walk into Autzen Stadium in 2021 and take us down to the wire. I watched them go into the Rose Bowl and beat a good UCLA team led by Chip Kelly and Dorian Thompson-Robinson. I know what they're capable of. Boise State, do I need to say anything else? We all know what Boise State's capable of. So I, I think just universally looking at, you know, a group of five schools and saying, well, you know, they're never going to do anything in the Pac. Some of them can already beat Pac-12 teams, and that's recruiting and playing in the Mountain West. They've got less money, and they've got a, a lower caliber on average of recruits that they've got access to. But when you go Power 5, all those things jump. All those things jump dramatically. The caliber of coach you can attract and keep around jumps. SMU, if they were in the Pac-12 right now, would probably still have Sonny Dykes as their head coach. But he went from SMU after getting let go at Cal 
to TCU, it of course went very, very well. But if SMU had been a power five school, he might have just stayed there because he started winning. And he showed that you can win at a place like SMU. And all these places can continue to develop. But those are the most likely schools. There are other ones listed there. Fresno State, Boise State, Rice, and Gonzaga. None of those are likely to be coming to the Pac-12. And the reason doesn't have anything to do with FanDuel, but this does. You, as a new customer, can get a no-sweat first bet at America's number one sports book up to $1,000. That's bonus bets back if your first bet doesn't win. Tournament's heating up. Gets back on Saturday. Final four. If you want to get in on the action with any sorts of bets, props, money lines, whatever, go check out FanDuel. Don't miss your shot at a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. When you join FanDuel today, just go to FanDuel.com slash locked on to sign up. Make every moment more with FanDuel. So the other schools, let's start with Boise State and Fresno State, because if I had my way, if I were Pac-12 commissioner and I represented the voice of all the Pac-12 presidents, I would add San Diego State, SMU, Fresno State, Boise State for various reasons. But the reason you can make of this what you will, I'm just the messenger here. Don't shoot the messenger. Don't just, just know this is not something that I am deciding because every realignment move, this is a very important thing to consider. Every realignment move has more to do with it than just athletics, which is a major consideration. It is not the only major consideration. And Boise State and Fresno State do not pass the academic smell test for Pac-12 presidents. They're not particularly close. Fresno State's a little above Boise in that regard, but they are way down. Academic ranking, their status as a research university, that stuff doesn't fit, and it matters to Pac-12 presidents. We've seen it time and time again. It's why they didn't go after BYU, who would have been an excellent fit. But the association with with the Mormon church doesn't fit culturally with with, with the Pac-12 presidents, and BYU's not a research university, doesn't fit. So BYU goes Big 12 where they don't really care about that sort of stuff. It's not a priority. So that's why Boise State and Fresno State won't get in and why they'll probably end up in the Big 12 is my prediction. One day they will end up uh, becoming members of the Big 12. But I think for for the Pac-12, they'd be great athletic additions, but they don't fit in that sense. Now, Rice is the opposite. Rice, don't forget Josh Pate of Late Kicks, number one rule. Don't lose to food. I don't think Oregon would. Rice has the opposite problem. If you took Rice's academic standing and you pasted it on Fresno State's athletics, then Fresno State would probably be above SMU. <sighs> They'd get, a better, they'd get a better look at it. Let's put it that way. Because Rice, which is located in the city of Houston, state of Texas, big media market, they're way down in the pecking order for sure. But just the appeal of having that geographical reach is very real for the conference. Rice's academics are elite. I'm talking, they're in the Stanford, Northwestern, like just, just go in that, just keep going down that line. That's where Rice's academics are. And they are 100% an academic cultural fit in the pack. But their athletics are no good at anything. They haven't been able to win in football. They rarely even make a bowl game. They're going to the American Conference. We'll see if they can change their fortunes there. If they could, they could be an option down the road. 
But you can't add them if you're the pack right now because they just they'd be Vanderbilt. That's what they would be. So maybe the pack would do it on on that basis, but they would literally be Vanderbilt where a five win season feels like they're you know this close to winning the Super Bowl. Like they would they they would need top to bottom. You know, it doesn't feel like they're that committed. I don't know what their resources are, are, are like or what sort of money they're able to come up with if they could compete in the Pac-12. I think it's a very real question. Like, if you struggle to compete in Conference USA, let's see how they do in the American before we could consider them for Pac-12 membership. Because I look at SMU, I look at San Diego State, and I say athletically, in at least one major sport, I can see them competing. SMU in football. I've got questions about basketball, but if they've got money, then they, they just need to find the right coach. And San Diego State in football and men's basketball, I can see it happening pretty easily there. Now, Gonzaga would be a great addition. I would love to add them as a basketball-only school. The problem with that is that in these media rights negotiations, when you're talking about the valuation of a conference and how much a school gets paid from the conference from a media rights deal, basketball is accounting for maybe 15, 20%. Maybe. It's not a lot. It's not zero, but it's not enough to tip the scales on its own. Now, Brett Yormark, the commissioner of the Big 12, had some comments not that long ago about how he feels basketball is undervalued and he thinks it should be this, that, and the other thing going forward. Part of the reason he's saying that is Big 12 basketball is the best in the country. Big 12 football is decidedly not once Oklahoma and Texas leave. Oklahoma and Texas leave, basketball is fine in the Big 12. Football is not. The Pac-12 is stronger going forward. I could give you a spiel on that if you'd like. Let me know in the comments, of course. YouTube, Twitter, at Smalls underscore 55, or at Locked on Ducks. So I think that that is a little bit of gamesmanship from your mark in that sense. But he's not wrong that basketball has some value. But with the way the Pac-12 has been performing in basketball lately kind of feels like it's unlikely they would make a basketball-only addition, which would strengthen their league and probably give them the best team or second best, depending on who else was there and who was having a good season. But um, yeah, not not sure Gonzaga is going to is going to get there either. And Gonzaga also, like the Pac-12 presidents would have to be highly committed to basketball. And at this point in time, it doesn't appear that they are. Because Gonzaga is also not a research institution. So, you know, culturally, there's kind of a fit and there kind of isn't on that academic and cultural front, but don't see that one that one happening. So that's kind of the most abbreviated version I could give you on, uh, on all of those. But San Diego State and SMU, very likely. Boise State and Fresno State, unlikely, though not impossible. Rice and Gonzaga, almost impossible at this point in time. But love the question, Richard. You know, I got plenty of realignment thoughts. So uh, let's move on, get back to uh, the Ducks a little bit. Eric Lammerman asks, I'd love to hear a little more in-depth analysis about how we want slash need from our linebackers has changed from the previous system to the current one. It seems like there's a greater need and emphasis for coverage, an area of weakness for the guys we recruited specifically for the previous system. I've read that Justin Jacobs is like a safety in a prototypical linebacker's body. Bossa is a converted safety, and Hill might be joining him in the linebacker core. Connor Sully is another guy who signed with ASU as a safety prospect, and you'd think we brought him in to serve as more than a depth piece. This may seem crazy, 
but it could be that Keith Brown is actually the odd man out of the linebacker too deep. How are his pass coverage chops? Brown was recruited for the previous system. Does he have what Lupoy and Landing are looking for moving forward? Okay, lots to unpack in that question. But I don't think Keith Brown can get entirely left out. I agree with you. He is built more in the previous mold in terms of being more run stopper and you know being a physical player and not being the the most agile athlete out there. But I think what we've seen from Keith Brown so far has been pretty darn good. And I, I, I don't think he can get left out of the rotation. I think he's too talented of a player. I would hate to see that because I think so far his coverage chops have been solid, nothing exceptional. But, you know, he, he had a play in the Holiday Bowl where he was matched up in, I, I think it was zone or man coverage on a touchdown against a wide receiver and he held up about as well as you possibly could and drake may threw an absolute seed into a window of three players and hit his receiver over the middle for like a 15 yard touchdown so i I don't think he's bad in, in in that sense he may be a little underdeveloped but i don't think he's going to get left out of it because he he just makes too many plays and i i think that the the general shift that we're seeing in linebackers needing to be more pass coverage dependent or pass coverage heavy is just a general football trend, right? This system to that system, you still need the same things out of your linebackers. They still need to be able to make plays against the run. It's not as if teams are just unable to run the football and they're throwing all the time and everybody's running the air raid, right? So it is a more pass happy sport now. And we have had some linebackers who have struggled in coverage, right? Jeffrey Bossa, I think he's pretty good in man coverage, struggles in zone coverage mightily, right? And that could be an experience thing. That could be a learning the defensive system thing. Keith Brown, I think he's, you know, serviceable in that sense, but he's really strong against the run. He's a solid tackler. That's got a lot of value. I think what you're going to see is kind of what we saw in 2022, which is the pairings are going to be one guy who's more slanted towards the run and one guy who's a little bit more slanted towards defending the pass at the linebacker position. Now, Jacobs is interesting because Jacobs is a really unique body type. He's tall, he's athletic, but he's strong and plays inside linebacker. So I I do think that he could be the guy who can do both, but then who lines up next to him for a given play or a sequence of plays may very well depend on personnel, matchups, and what the other team is showing. And I think you could see a guy like Connor Sully play that other linebacker spot I think you could see him play the star safety position Jamal Hill like you mentioned is moving down and or at least that's what we've heard at this point in time he's going to go from safety to linebacker he's certainly built enough for that but he's you know a little bit smaller than say a Noah Sewell who was a really good run stuffer was actually better than you'd think in pass coverage according to PFF but last year right? It was Sewell and there was always somebody else. Sometimes it was Flo, sometimes it was Bossa, occasionally it was Brown. Sewell's almost always on the field. I think Jacobs is going to be that top linebacker option this year. And then whoever's next to him will depend on who's playing well, what they're expecting defensively, what coverages they're running, what the other team is doing offensively. But I I think that generally, you know, going a little bit smaller at the linebacker position and being able to cover, I, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing because 
you're more likely the Oregon State game was just a massive anomaly there, and you you know we don't need to go back down that rabbit hole again. But you are are going to be put in situations if you're going against a good offensive coordinator where a receiver is matched up on a linebacker, and you need him to at least be able to run with him. And that's the appeal of moving Jeffrey Boss to linebacker or Jamal Hill and recruiting a guy like Justin Jacobs. And I, I see what you're saying about Brown, but I think you can. I think you can have one guy like Keith Brown out there who's more suited to stop the run than the pass, but you can't have two because that's they're they're going to get torched. Tight ends are too fast. You get receivers on them. Like that that's uh, I think asking too much out of a linebacker like that. But I think you could see you know a big linebacker like Jacobs out there with a smaller one like Hill or Bossa who are converted safeties or Sully. And you could see Brown out there with one of those guys. You could see two speed guys of, you know, you could see Bossa and and Hill out there maybe if you're really expecting the pass, if you're going up against an air raid team. I, I think it depends on matchups pretty heavily. But I, I think Keith Brown's too talented to to leave out, to get left out of the rotation entirely. Um, you know, does he have what Lou Point landing are looking for moving forward? Yeah, he's a playmaker. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what you need. Is it the Jimmys and the Joes or the X's and the O's? Well, it's both, but Keith Brown is is one of those Jimmys or Joes who can just get out there and and make plays. So I don't think you can leave him off the field entirely, but I, I do see what you're saying that, you know, he's bigger, he's bulkier, maybe he slims down a little bit, but maybe he gets a little bit quicker and shows him something. I, I'm most intrigued to see, you know, what that what that kind of looks like. Okay, let, let's wrap up with some basketball talk. Great question, Eric, by the way. Appreciate it as always. Wrap up with some basketball talk. So the big question for the Ducks is, you know, after Khalil Ware, what's going to come next? And the guy that we're still waiting to hear from is Enfali Dante. Is he going to the NBA? Because if he does, we need to get a big out of the portal. If he doesn't, we can roll with Enfali Dante and Nate Biddle and, you know, maybe try and, and you got KJ Evans as a power forward in there. Maybe they'd add another one, but... Um, that that's something to watch. So something I threw out on Twitter yesterday, and I, I will admit fully, I was a little hasty with my response because I get very excited talking about Oregon basketball more than a lot of you do, which is okay, but I hope one day we can change that. But Caleb Love is in the portal, who was a five-star recruit coming out of high school, has spent three years at North Carolina, helped guide the Tar Heels to the Final Four, to the national championship game a season ago. He took a step back this year. The team took a step back this year. Now he's in the portal. And he will have, he should have, let's see, 23. I believe he's got just one year of eligibility remaining. But there are pros and cons here. You know, my gut reaction was, oh my gosh, he's perfect. And here's why. The pros of adding Caleb Love to this upcoming Oregon basketball roster. He's got experience at a high level and has won college basketball games against good teams. Come tournament time, he's not going to be phased. It's not going to be too big for him. Guy knows what to do there. Number two, he's a playmaking point guard. You might look at his numbers and say he only averages three assists a game or or close to three and a half. That's more than it is in the NBA. That's like a secondary guard, but your primary point guard for a number of teams can average three, three and a half assists a game because games are not as long, guys are not as skilled, 
and, and generally, you know, they haven't obviously played as much refined basketball as guys in the NBA. So assist numbers tend to be lower. But would I like that number to be higher? Sure. I'd love it for it to be four and a half to five. But is it as bad as it looks on that sense? No. And what Oregon was really lacking this year was a point guard who could make plays. When Will Richardson was making plays, he was playing well and the team was playing well. And then that was taken away because he lost his confidence, as we all saw in the middle of the season, couldn't shake it, and he wasn't able to get by players. Caleb Love is far more athletic and dynamic and can, and can get by him or can get by the guys guarding him much more easily. And I know Caleb Love, Caleb Love doesn't have a confidence problem, which I'll talk about in a sec. He's capable, this is the third pro, of being a number one go-to option, or at least one of the top options on the team. Something I've been saying about this Oregon basketball team for the last two seasons now, there's no number one. Chris Duarte left, and Richardson was supposed to be the one. And when he's played as a number one, and the offenses run through him, and he's shooting and scoring at all three levels like he's capable of, and he's setting up his teammates, Oregon wins. But when you've taken that away, Oregon's offense has gone stagnant and cold, and they need more shooters too. But they haven't had a number one guy, and Caleb Love can be that. Primary ball handler, I think he and Kuznard could play in the backcourt together just fine, but he's a primary ball handler who can get his own shot, who can set up shots for others. I would There would need to be some tweaks in his game, but I don't think this is ridiculous. And then here's the final thing with him. Jackson Shellstad, whose potential I'm optimistic about, wouldn't be forced into action. And remember, when Peyton Pritchard, which everybody naturally thinks about, right? High four-star point guard from West Lynn, kind of a ball-centric guy, but you know can really score at all three levels. A lot of similarities there. Peyton Pritchard was a role-playing starter as a true freshman. And he would often get subbed out quickly for Casey Benson, a veteran point guard. And then his role grew and grew, and he grew and grew as a player. Jackson Shellstad, if Caleb Love was there, could get eased into the rotation, would not be forced to handle more than he's capable of right away. Now, there are downsides, more than I initially realized, fully admitting that, to Caleb Love. I talked to Isaac Shade, who is our host here at the Locked On Network of Locked On Tar Heels and Locked On College Basketball. He's awesome, knows his stuff. He is not that sad about Caleb Love leaving. And the reason, primarily, is he's not a knockdown shooter. Now, this is a legitimate drawback. Completely understand if fans have an aversion to adding him because they say he's not a good enough shooter and Oregon needs shooting. That's very true. Very 100% accurate. Can't deny it. In his three seasons as a Tar Heel, his three-point percentages are 27%, not good. 36% when they went to the national championship game, that's good. That would have been the highest three-point percentage for any Oregon player this year. Keyshawn Bartholomew was 35.8. And then this year, Love took a step back and he was a 29.9% three-point shooter, so basically 30. He is also not the world's most efficient scorer. He's a volume scorer. He's not an efficient one. He's an under 40% field goal, sh- field goal shooter overall for his career. So would his game need refinement? Yes. 
but I have seen him play at a level or at the very least shoot at a level that would be sufficient to be Oregon's starting point guard and be what we are looking for. Now, his confidence, unlike Richardson, never wavered. His confidence is still there. And Isaac said that's kind of a fault of his because he put up a lot of threes and he wasn't hitting them a lot this year. He was hitting them last year, but he didn't this season. But he kept shooting them. He made over two a game, but he did it on over seven tries per game. So not what you would love to see. So some people, you know, had, had I, I got some pushback on, no, he wouldn't be perfect. He wouldn't be this. All right, there, there are flaws. But if you got the best out of him, if you, if you were able to get the 2021-22 Caleb Love, who averaged about 15 a game, three and a half assists, and was 36% from range, I would 100% take him. Because he is a dynamic playmaking point guard who can break down the defense, which is what Oregon was missing for the last couple months of the season when, when Richardson's play declined and then he was hurt and whatnot. That's what they were missing. And if your three guards were Caleb Love, Jermaine Kuznard, and Keyshawn Bartholomew, I think that's a good enough rotation of guards to get Oregon back to the tournament. So it's an if. It's an if. But I I would be interested in in the prospect of adding Caleb Love. There are other guys uh, who I'll, I'll talk about more tomorrow. TJ Bamba from Washington State. Kirk Creaser from Arizona. Both could be fits for the Ducks at the point guard position as well. But if you've got more questions or more thoughts, drop them in the YouTube comments or hit me up on Twitter at Smalls underscore 55 or at Locked on Ducks. DMs and mentions wide open. Love some basketball chat. We're going to keep we're going to keep going on this. So we'll get back to uh, we'll get back to it tomorrow. Might have John tomorrow. So drop your questions. We'll get to them when we get to them. We got plenty of time. Appreciate everyone listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day and go Ducks.